Good morning, church family. Today we are going to be reading Psalms 48. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. In the city of our God is holy mountain. Beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Like the highest of Zaphon is the Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. When the kings joined forces, when they advanced together, they saw her and were astounded. They fled in terror. Trembling seized them there, pain like a woman in labor. You destroyed them like the ships in Tarshish, shattered by the east winds. As we have heard, so we have seen, in the city of the Lord Almighty, in the city of our God, God makes her secure forever. Within your temple, O God, we meditate in your unfailing love. Like your name, O God, your praise reaches the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Mount Zion rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go around her, count her towers. Consider well her tramp, uh, ramparts, view her citadels, that you may tell them to the next generation. For, the, for this God is our God, and, every, for, and forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. Good morning. The Old Testament reading is uh, Exodus 34, 29 through 35. In Pew Bibles, page 85. Yeah, well. The radiant face of Moses. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant, radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all his Israelites saw Moses in his face, was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the, afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commandments the Lord had given him, given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face, but whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses put the veil back over his face until he went to speak with the Lord. Our New Testament reading is found in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 12. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before, him, before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, 
Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah has come and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything that they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Well, I've done it to myself again. Today's yet another complicated sermon, so I'll try to uh, keep it all sorted and not get too lost. I think last week, much to my chagrin, I was informed after the sermon, and this will be the takeaway message, right, that the Holy Spirit, I said, appeared at Holocaust. I think I meant to say Pentecost. My brain does these magical little poof things every now and then, and um, it's not to be helped. Uh, I, I couldn't prevent it if I wanted to, unless I suppose I was reading a manuscript. So you just continue to tell me when I uh, substitute one of these great words for another, and um, w it'll all be good. Last week's sermon was really complicated, and I, I don't know if I pulled it off or not. Uh, some of you seem to enjoy it a great deal, but uh, I'm going to recap it for all of you, just kind of an idea of what we're dealing with. First of all, the picture on the front here is taken from a, uh, a painting in a chapel in the Sinai in Israel, and it's 12th century. So what this depiction of the transfiguration goes back to is the 1100s in Sinai. Now, just to put this in context for you, there was only one Christian church until 1022 AD, at which point the Eastern Orthodox branch of the church split off from the Roman branch, and we have Western Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy forming in 1022. That's the early roots of it. So not a 100 years later, you have this particular depiction showing up in a chapel in Western Christendom long before there were any thoughts of Reformation, long before there was going to be uh, divisions in the Western Church which led to uh, the Protestant rise and movement and ultimately denominations like our own. So I, I thought it was a, an interesting and uh, iconoclastic uh, uh, depiction, very kind of classic uh, Christian depiction of the uh, this theme we celebrate uh, here in Transfiguration, the Epiphany. Uh, we're in that season, and, and for those of you who've been with us, I don't want to bore you and repeat everything. Those of you who haven't, I just want to say by word of introduction that uh, we're, we're just exploring what this very foreign notion. I was not. I was raised Seventh-day Adventist. I wasn't raised Catholic. Those who were raised uh, in other denominations like Lutheranism, Catholicism, so forth, might have some idea of what Epiphany is about. But I, I certainly was raised with no idea of what it was. I'd heard the word. And it's the season following Christmas in which stories are, are, are highlighted that explode, if you will, our view of Christ. They give us a, a totally fresh insight into who Jesus was is, and how that is to be and, and, and how that can change our thinking in our lives. And so we've just been exploring those stories uh, thematically and sermonically these last couple of weeks. We touched uh, on uh, Simeon and Anna. You can read this in the pastor's letter if you care to. Uh, in, during Christmas time itself, 
we've explored the uh, gifts of the Magi. And this last week, uh, my sermon connected the baptism of Jesus to a number of critical ideas. First, the Jewish mikvah or ceremonial bath, which paved the way to salvation by allowing one to be reborn a Jew. Then the revelation and revolution that takes place in the teaching of John the Baptist, whereby baptism is not a vehicle to become Jewish, but rather to receive forgiveness for the repentance of sins. Third, Jesus uh, actually uses this occasion, and not in a, a bad way, but he uses it to gain credibility because he has the voice of the prophet John the Baptist um, and the affirmation of John the Baptist who says, here comes one who even though I was born first came before me, he's greater than I, I'm not unworthy, I'm not worthy to untie his shoes, and uh, so forth. And he has the voice of the Father, this is my beloved son, with whom I'm, I'm pleased. So we have these two witnesses which give Jesus credibility at the beginning of his ministry. And of course the affirmation and praise of the Father in this. And finally the necessity of a baptism of spirit or a baptism of fire which we see illustrated in Acts when the tongues of flame rest upon the believers in the upper room and they're given to speak in tongues and interpret tongues and all manner of gifts in the Spirit, and wondrous acts are performed. But Jesus uses this baptism of fire notion not just to mean the Spirit, but to also refer to the gauntlet that he's going to go through. And so when we speak of a baptism of fire, we're speaking of a baptism of difficult experience, of maybe even a life-threatening or fatal experience. Um, and so Jesus refers to uh, the the cup, as it were, that he is to drink as this baptism of fire as he prepares to, to be sacrificed on Calvary for our salvation. So these are all things that were present in the story of the baptism of, of Jesus that we explored last week as the story of an epiphany. And today there are layers and complications as well as we look at the story of the transfiguration. It was just read to you from Matthew 17. It's present also uh, in another gospel, and it's very, very similarly rendered. A couple striking features of this that I just want to pop at you right away, and we're going to come to some other texts that support and highlight some of these things. But the first and most obvious feature is what happens to Jesus himself in this moment on the mountain. Now, before I go too far, I want to comment about on the mountain. Okay, this is Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. This is the mountain of Elijah. Okay, this is uh, this is the mountain where um, the, the the idea of mountain itself is the place where the king is and the king's city is. In ancient times, cities were walled; they had no other defenses, and so things were built upon tells or little hills or mountains. If you go to Israel today and you go to Masada, you see one of the most formidable fortresses that was built in the time of Christ by King Herod. And you see his palace there, one of his winter palaces, because the Negev is nasty in the summer. You do not want to be there when it's 125 degrees. Men, you'll lose all the hair on your legs, I promise. Um, it's just too hot. That's how hot it is. So uh, we have this wonderful... Um, 
biblical reality in which the mountain is the place of the king. It's a place of highness. It's the place where the city is situated. And high in the city would be where the temple is at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. High in the city is where the palaces would be. And so this notion of being on the mountain or the mountain of God refers to his authority and his kingship and his power and this place of elevation. On the mountain, that's the first thing we want to note. And what happens to Christ? His face begins to radiate, begins to glow. Not red like mine, um, but to really convey glory. It begins to shine. Now, we're told that no man can see God and live. Christ is, I mean, God is described as a consuming fire. He manifests himself in the Exodus as a pillar of cloud by day, but fire by night. His presence in the Holy of Holies is light. It's the Shekinah, the glory, the, the presence of the living one. No man can look upon it and live. And so we find Jesus beginning to radiate the glory of God. Something's bursting forth in this moment on the mountain. He's being changed. Something special is happening in the presence of God. And it says his garments were white, whiter than any bleach could ever get them. Isn't that fantastic? You know, if you look at whites on movies or TVs, sometimes the white, even though it's just white, appears to be this brightness, this kind of glory, this fire, this this source that's coming at us. When I stare at these bulbs, it's about the same way. Um, it, his raiment is changed. Now, we're told that we're going to put on white robes of Christ, what? Righteousness. When we refer to what we, what we wear in heaven, or when we even think back to Eden, we're thinking of a robe of light as what's also often described in Eden. This, this radiance is what clothes Adam and Eve. This radiance is what clothes perhaps us and the earth made new. So Jesus is not yet crucified, but he's exhibiting signs of being changed by the glory of the Father and in the moment. And I don't know how far this goes. I, I wasn't there, and I can't testify to whether Jesus received the body that he received in resurrection, this body we receive in the twinkling of an eye in resurrection, this resurrection body we refer to, that Paul describes that we don't really have a solid idea of what this is. We know it's corporeal, but we also know that it's different than the body we inhabit now. It's not mortal, it's immortal. I don't know if Christ is transposed to this immortality in this moment or if it's just a foreshadowing of what will come in resurrection. But he's accompanied by two figures, immediately recognized by the disciples present, Moses and Elijah. These two figures are the 
seminal figures of the Old Testament, the prophets of the Old Testament. No greater exists than these two. And as we reflect on this, this isn't shocking to us because in Exodus 34, which I think we just read, I may have my Exoduses turned around, Moses is up on Sinai, up on the mountain, with God, receiving the law and the Ten Commandments and the Tablet of Stone. And as he comes down off the mountain, people cannot stand to look at his face. It's radiating. It's glowing. It's emitting the light of God. He's been in the presence of one who is a consuming fire, and his face reflects the glory of the divine king. He too has been on the mountain. He too has had an encounter with the living God. And as he comes off the mountain, he's forced to veil himself because people cannot stand to look at him for the brightness of his countenance and the reminder of their own state. Moses experiences, if you will, his own mini-transfiguration in the presence of God on Sinai in these days and nights receiving the law and the tablets of the law. Elijah, too, will see his own kind of transfiguration. In 2 Kings, I think it's chapter 1, maybe chapter 2, in 2 Kings we find Elijah picked up, as it were, by chariots of fire and vanishing into the heavens. As he's departing, he tosses his staff to Elisha and tosses down his mantle or his cloak. He has already taken Elisha on as a successor and as associate, but in this moment, it becomes official. Elisha will now be the prophet of Israel. Can't help but think, it's not expounded upon much in Scripture, but can't help but think in this moment of encounter with the divine, as Elijah is taken without seeing death, and we know the story of Moses, right? He's not permitted into the promised land. He dies upon the mountain, having been visited by God and told of these things. He's given a vision of what's to come, but he's laid to rest there. And according to Jude, we find that Moses is later resurrected, for Satan would quarrel with Christ over the body of Moses. So Moses resurrected, and now Elijah taken without having seen death, each having, having had their encounter with the living God, each having their own transfigurations of sorts, now show up beside the transfigured Christ. And a voice is heard. And just like with the story of the baptism of Jesus, the voice says, This is my son whom I love. And I am really pleased with him. What, what a moment of affirmation and encouragement. Not only now do we have John the Baptist baptizing Jesus and this voice from heaven and the heavens torn open and the glory of God revealing itself in the spirit as a dove. Now we have this transcendent moment upon the mountain, Horeb, the mountain of God. 
and Jesus is transfigured and these two amazing witnesses stand with him Moses and Elijah the great 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 prophets of the Old Testament shining with him in all Christian depictions of this the disciples with them are shown as practically cast down the mountain I'm sure there are different takes in Eastern Orthodoxy and Western Orthodoxy Western Christianity on on which apostle is facing down the mountain and why but they are all beneath portrayed as underneath and beneath the glorified Christ and Moses and Elijah it's from this position that they have to gather themselves for they're afraid but they feel the call to do something and so whether it comes from the Feast of the Tabernacles or what we don't know for sure but they they decide it might be a good idea to erect three dwellings or three structures one for Moses one for Elijah and one for Christ it's a lovely gesture I don't know how they were going to achieve it I don't really know what the purpose was except to express the vain hope that some kind of place could be found for them that they could maybe it was an effort subconsciously to contain them I don't know maybe it was as my children's story said an opportunity to celebrate you see one of the things that's clear to me about scripture that isn't easy to communicate and people don't necessarily like to hear is that scripture isn't always clear we don't always know the full meaning or every detail of what's referenced or what's explained for example in Zechariah 4 we have a description of two witnesses there are those who they're they're symbolized by two lampstands and bowls of oil and it's very difficult to know what is exactly meant in Zechariah 4 it could be that these two witnesses are Moses and Elijah it could be that they're the Old and New Testament it could be the church ancient and the church present there are lots of commentators all with different ideas but there is a passage of Scripture to explore that isn't necessarily immediately clear Malachi though is more clear Malachi speaks of the coming of Elijah Malachi is why in the time of Christ some of the people were looking for the coming of Elijah do you remember that they asked if Jesus was Elijah who was Elijah in the New Testament though we covered this a little bit last week you remember John the Baptist is the Elijah of the New Testament bearing that same message coming to the people and conveying that message so there's lots of powerful things that connect to this particular moment I want to take time while we're running a little late because of all the joyous programming we've had this morning but I want to take just a minute to reference a couple of other things for you if we go to say Deuteronomy I excuse me if we go to say Zechariah we get this idea 
that the two witnesses may be those who could bring about plagues or keep things from raining upon the earth. And in Exodus 7, we find just such a story about Moses. Aaron and Moses appear before Pharaoh. The first miracle, of course, is the miracle of the staffs becoming serpents, and Moses' staff, or the serpent that was his staff, eats up the magician's serpents, which used to be staffs. Was that clear as mud? I'll just let that one lie. But there's a series of plagues promised. Moses doesn't bring them about. He simply warns Pharaoh of what will come if he refuses to yield to the God of heaven and earth. If he refuses to acknowledge that God's people must worship him in spirit and truth. And so these plagues are brought about as Moses appears again and again and again to the most powerful man in the most powerful nation on earth, the Pharaoh. In 1 Kings 17, we see a prophet standing up to a king and more, light, more appropriately a queen in this case. He's banished. He's eating at the hand of ravens and performing miracles at the widow's house in Zarephath. But in 19, the encounter on, a, on Mount Carmel is over. Elijah has demonstrated that God is the true God. And after this fact, in 1 Kings 19, Elijah flees. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba and Juba, Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. At once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Forty days and forty nights ring a bell? It should. Jesus, right after his baptism, spends forty days and forty nights in the wilderness, encountering the kinds of demons. And as Elijah was fed by angels and encouraged to buy them, as he was experiencing exhaustion, and fatigue and wanted to die. So Jesus is ministered to by angels at the end of his 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. So he goes to the cave on the mountain of the Lord, and there he sleeps, and the word of God comes to him, what are you doing, Elijah? And he says, I've been so zealous. I've worked so hard. The Israelites, they've all rejected you. They've rejected the covenant, torn down your altars. They put the prophets to death. I'm the only one left. I'm the only one. Jesus, God says, go stand out on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the 
Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak out of his face, over his face, and went and stood at the mouth of the cave. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he repeats his story. I've been so zealous. The Israelites have rejected you, and now they're trying to kill me too, and I'm the only one left. So the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus, and when you get there, anoint Hazel, king over Aram, and anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Saphat, from Abel Meloah, to succeed you as prophet. Elijah has to encounter the living God, too, in his own epiphany. And in this moment, he discovers something very significant. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And Elijah shows up with Jesus, having encountered the living God in his own ministry, having experienced the radiance of God in his own life, and testimony to the one who has come, the one transfigured. And so in this epiphany, we have several revelations. God affirms Christ in birth, affirms him in baptism, affirms him in transfiguration, and affirms him in death and resurrection. We see Christ in this figure, in this, a kind of Moses and Elijah, a fulfillment, an, a reality that encapsulates the greatness of them both and moves well beyond it. It takes us into the next dimension, the next phase. We see a radiant God, transfigured and transformed, and we know that one day we too shall be transfigured and transformed. We see a change. Because what I haven't had time to share with you is that the context of this story takes place right after Peter's declaration. Who do people say that I am, Peter? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's in that context that this revelation happens. It's in that context that Christ is transfigured. I don't know what all other purposes this act may have served. But in this moment, we get a picture of the eternal Christ, one known and loved by Moses and Elijah, one affirmed by Moses and Elijah, and more importantly, the Father. One who is above all and with all. One who stands on the mountain of the Lord in radiant glory. Our King forever with all authority and power and glory. And one who chooses not to speak to us out of the fierceness of fire or earthquake or wind, but accomplishes in us through his spirit that which will make us ready for our own day 
of transformation. Christ, who in glory stands upon the mountaintop, bless us now and forevermore. Amen.